So welcome to episode seven of Slow Down to Go Fast. I'm gonna do some reflections on project-based learning in Caleb Rashad's keynote at PBL World, which is now posted on YouTube. Session one, week one of CTY is down, so I thought I'd think about things that have happened and reflect on that experience think about the question, what do you want math to do for you? Stay tuned. So the Buck Institute of Education posted Caleb Rashad's keynote um, from PBL World and I got done watching it about an hour ago and then I went out for a meditative walk around the um, around the bluff here on the campus. So I am out in Los Angeles at Loyola Marymount University for Center for Talented Youth, which is a program put on for, by Johns Hopkins. And uh, so I went and walked around the outside of the bluff and that the campus is on and uh, thought about uh, that keynote and many other things. And Caleb Rashad has repeatedly talked about doing authentic work and that a part of what High Tech High is first and foremost an equity project, but it is also about getting students to do work that is authentic to them and, and things that they can be invested in. And I really have started to wonder what that looks like in my own classroom. What does it mean to do authentic work? I don't think that has to look the same way um, everywhere you are. Certainly, High Tech High has had the opportunity to, um, to collaborate with a number of universities and go out, have their students go out and do and participate in very real research projects um, that are going on. And so I've, I've been thinking a lot about what does it look like to do authentic work bonded together by story. So he started this keynote off by talking about where he comes from, um, his dad growing up in the Jim Crow South, people that he knows that still live in that kind of environment. And I was talking with another one of the instructors here earlier this evening about telling stories. And we're all really bonded together by telling stories. Telling our own story is a part of connecting with others, but it is also about how our identity is and the stories that we tell about ourselves to ourselves and the stories that run through our brains have a very large impact on the way we see the world and what we do. It's as old as oral communication. It is how things have been passed down from family to, fam to from generation to generation and throughout families. It's a part of what creates culture. We're bonded together by our stories and in telling stories, we relate to each other. Hopefully we see that we're not all that different, but. 
So when I, when I saw Caleb Rashad at Shift in Edu in Miami last November, he was talking about love and disruption in education. And part of that message is that doing education for real in a way that inspires students to light their souls on fire and to find themselves not just within themselves, but in each other. That's hard work. It's badass work, but it's extremely hard. So a number of people on my um, PLN on Twitter have been either reading or rereading Adam Grant's originals. It is difficult to be viewed as a nonconformist. Life is easier when people conform. There is supposedly less conflict. It's not challenging what's happening around you. It is needed as a reminder to know that when you're being viewed as a nonconformist, it's quite possible something is going right. It is ex also extremely difficult when people start viewing a nonconformist as someone who is not a team player. And those two things, being a team player and being a nonconformist, they don't necessarily have to be in conflict with each other. But sometimes, because of challenging the status quo, and the conflict that comes from that, one is viewed as not being a team player. So one of the things that Adam Grant has been posting both on LinkedIn and, and Twitter recently is that it isn't about finding somebody that fits your culture per se. You don't want replicas. You don't want the Russian dolls that fit inside of each other. So when you go out and you hire, you're not looking for the Russian doll that fits inside of all the others. You're looking for someone who will contribute and add to your culture. And here's where it comes. Conflict that comes from a position of trust is invaluable. It isn't that we're trying to live lives of no conflict. You get nowhere. That's not the point. The point is to be able to have those conversations in a way that is real, in a way where the conversation that you're having is the real conversation. Having fake conversations, having conversations that aren't actually the conversation, don't just cause conflict. They are the contributors to causing a culture that defaults to mistrust and distrust. And that's a serious problem. And so one of the other things that he meant, that Caleb mentioned in this talk was it's not about the project. 
the project is a means to the end. What is it that you want students to walk away with at the end of the day? Because there's a thousand different, if you list three different things you want students to talk about or to be able to do at the end of a project, there's a thousand different ways to get there. And there's probably a thousand different projects to accomplish that. You do the project, you reflect on what you learned, you reflect on the biases and the dispositions and the attitudes that you personally have walking into it and how those things may have changed. And you reflect on how you interacted with each other. Those are three different things there that are left to do that can be accomplished no matter what you do or what the project is. So those are some, some things that I think there's a lot to unpack. I think there's a lot to think about in that. So I mentioned that I'm out here um, for CTY, Center for Talented Youth. I hadn't been to this site since 2010 and I only did one session in 2010 and it was a great session. It was a fantastic experience. So I was interested uh, to come back here um, some eight years later, almost a decade later. And um, a lot of things have changed, but it's always interesting to see who I run into um, as, I, as I travel around at the various different sites. Um, this year on Sunday night, so at this, at this site, I have the full two hours on the first Sunday night, which isn't the, which isn't the case at all sites. Um, so I was seriously wondering how I was going to fill two hours, um, because I hadn't had to do that in quite some time. Um, so we started off talking about the honor code, um, and, and what CTY expects of us. Um, and we and I decided to have students write goals this year. And I mentioned that um, at the end of the school year that I was required to write a couple of goals as questions as a part of our developing um, professional development. And so I had the students do the same. And we talked about how um, writing a goal as a question gets your mind thinking about how to answer the question. So an example that I gave was how might I shape the cryptography course to inspire or and invoke a student's sense of wonder? Again, this course is a cryptography course, but there are some things that aren't about the course. How can I invoke a sense of wonder around mathematics? How can I invoke a sense of wonder around the applications of mathematics, computer science, engineering, and, and get students to think about perhaps what their place is in all of that? Or as I'll talk about later, what do they want math to do for them? Questions. So I, um, 
they had a little trepidation about this. So the first question that got asked was, are you going to read them? And I said, yes. And they said, oh, no, or at least a couple of them did. <laughs> and I told them that I was interested in them and that I was interested in what they were trying to accomplish and what they were doing, doing there. And that seemed to assuage that fear. They wrote some really good questions. Um, so we're going to take those in the middle of next week and uh, give them back to the students and have them reflect on how, uh, how well they have accomplished their goal um, and write out some action items to help them continue to accomplish that goal. And perhaps if they feel that they've accomplished the goal that they set out to, that they'll write another one for the last week and a half of the session. They have chewed up everything that I have put in front of them, and it has been fantastic. Um, it isn't just about shoving information down students' throats and getting them to consume all this stuff at once, because when I watch them, they are doing the processes. They are cracking substitution ciphers that I don't know if I've handed out those substitution ciphers before, but they're going through it, and they're going through it in uh, in a in in a fairly speedily way. And I've I've tried to think about you know kind of a part of why that's happening. I think a part of it is that it's just like any other team when the right personalities end up in the classroom together and things mesh and you're real willing to work together and take the journey together things start working out really really well there has been definitely some of the bond groups have bonded together really well um, and when that happens, you're off to the races. A part of it is absolutely about getting out of the student's way. I can hand them information. They can consume it. They can take it in. But at the end of the day, they learn the most from doing. And so sometimes it's just about getting out of the way and letting them go dig for the gold or the copper or the azurite or whatever it is that they're after and letting them go dig for it. I, in particular, um, had a couple of students that have been working on this simple substitution and I'm not even sure I have a key for it, if, or if it is if it is floating around somewhere in the course guide, I, I'm not sure where it is. Um, and they asked me, do you know which one of these three-letter blocks are the? And I said, not really. And they, they had mentioned that they'd tried one, and it really got nowhere, but they tried another one, and they were explaining why this fit together better. And I told them, that you're getting words is a good sign. This is, you know, getting words is always a good sign when you're trying to break a cipher. 
15 minutes later, they'd gotten a hold of the handle that they needed and they'd leveraged their way into it and they cracked it. And that is fantastic thing to see and to watch. And I have another student who has been working on a, on a Playfair that, again, I don't know how to do it. But she keeps pulling the information together that she has and synthesizing it and trying different things. And really, that's a lot about what the research process is about. It's a lot of what some things in life are about, are being able to iterate on what you're doing and being able to come back together um, when things aren't working out. And part of it is letting them pace themselves. Um, we went through a lot of material Monday through Thursday. Um, Friday came and they were spent. One can get frustrated out of that or one can acknowledge it and relax. One of the things about a program like this that takes place over three weeks and students are in class from 9 to 12.15 and then 1.15 to 3 and 7 to 9 in the evening is if you keep going hard all the time, you do not get the opportunity to process the information. So when students are spent, I really feel like the best thing to do is acknowledge it and relax. And so we had affine transformations to do on Friday, and that is the only topic we did. I let them work on substitutions. I let them do it at their own pace um, to get through some things. Our job at that moment was to manage their frustration, manage that they were a little tired, and relax. Have a good time. It's okay. <laughs> my last thought for tonight, or my last question, what do you want math to do for you? Our director of IT, one of his favorite questions is what do you want to build? Another favorite question of people that I interact with on Twitter is what problem do you want to solve? My question right now is what do you want math to do for you? And here's the follow-up. How does that answer change one's path in studying mathematics? Because if you're headed down the road of computer science, yeah, there's some calculus that you're interested in, but you're probably headed towards doing something like number theory or graph theory deeply. Your interest in proof is going to be around algorithms. If you're headed in the direction of the sciences or economics, 
you're going to be in, very interested in calculus and the things that that can do for you. If you're headed in other directions, say you're headed towards nursing, finance, data mining, some of those kinds of things, your interest is going to be statistical at a minimum. I don't think there is this calculus versus statistics thing. I think the real question is, what do you want math to do for you? Here's my second, here's, well, I guess I'm up to three questions now. What does mastery look like? Mastery for a long time in a math course has looked like that you can regurgitate whatever I want you to regurgitate whenever I want you to regurgitate it. I can slap exercise X, Y, and Z in front of you and you can do it. Here's the thing. When mathematicians do research, they write a paper, they send that paper off to be refereed. It is oftentimes somewhere between six months and a year when you get that paper back and you're reading the comments. And I've had multiple mathematicians say to me that when they're reading those comments or reading the questions that the referee asked about the paper, that they're looking at it going, I'm not sure I remember what I was thinking about when I wrote that. Does that mean that they didn't learn it at the time? Here's another example. The other night in study hall, I had the students read, or not read, I had the students watch um, the proof which is a BBC documentary that was done uh, about Andrew Wiles solving Fermat's last theorem. And after we got done watching the video, I took questions and we eventually came around to that the documentary doesn't talk a lot about the math that was used. And so I started answering questions about the math that was used to solve the theorem. It's been at least a year before I was thinking about those things deeply. In fact, this is the first summer in quite some time that I haven't tried to understand some aspect of the proof to Fermat's last theorem. And because that was the case, there were some of the details that were fuzzy and there were some of the details um, that I've explained and talked about from a 50,000 foot point of view. Whereas a year ago or two years ago, I probably could have done it with more detail. Does that mean I didn't learn it? Does that mean I didn't master it? Or does that mean that I learned what I could at the time and that my professional life has taken me in another direction. Students' lives take them in all kinds of directions as they do their studies too. 
here's my other thing. You more than likely can't master something on a first exposure. So if I have students in a pre-calculus class, should mastery even be the goal? Because there's concepts in there in that course or a calculus course that are going to take multiple exposures to be able to fit them in a mathematical framework and to be able to understand what they do and how they show up. What does mastery look like? Last question for Nadai. What does the mathematical experience look like and how can students experience that? So next year I'm going to be teaching a multivariable calculus course. And I've been thinking a lot about, I can do the lecture thing and I can tell students about what's happening in multivariable calculus and talk about the topics that come up and shove some of those topics into manifolds and what, why mathematicians find these things interesting. But is that the mathematical experience? Mathematicians go to colloquia and lectures and they talk and they go to conferences and they listen to people and what they're thinking about. That's definitely true. But there's this whole other part of the mathematical experience that is about trying to understand things you don't understand that is about trying to answer questions and put these set of questions that you've answered together into a cohesive whole and develop a theory. And quite frankly, the best part of showing up to conferences is the after conference where you're talking to people about what they're thinking about and you're reflecting on a talk and or you're doing a deep dive into a topic. What if we took the time in any math course and said, let's talk about topic X and our goal is to understand what we can understand. What if we did it at Google X and rewarded killing projects? Perhaps killing a project looks like, okay, we wanted to explore this and it's too hard. We don't have the tools to explore that right now. What's the subtopic of this that after a month of research that we can get a handle on? A comment that I would like to stop hearing is how can how can high school students understand that? Whether it's fractals or some deep topic in linear algebra or multivariable calculus. I think our biases 
our ambitions and our own points of view are sometimes glass ceilings on what our students can accomplish. Again, I think there's a lot to unpack and I think there's a lot that I'm going to continue to think about in regards to this question of what do you want math to do for you? I hope you are well and I will talk to you again in a week or two. Good night.